Welcome to the City of Refuge podcast, where our mission is to equip a diverse community of Christ followers to make him known. Well, good morning, City of Refuge. Uh, My name is Brandon Freemian. Uh, I wanted to start out by having you think back to high school. I recognize this may bring back troubling memories, but, you know, one of the characteristics of high school is you get to read uh, great pieces of literature, although at the time, sometimes you think they're not so great. But uh, some of you may have read uh, Pilgrim's Progress. So Pilgrim's Progress was a book written by John Bunyan, published in 1678. And this book is famous for being an allegory of the Christian life. So in the story, it follows this journey that Christian goes on as he first encounters Jesus, is saved, and then undergoes a series of trials and tribulations as he's making his way to the celestial city, which represents heaven. And along the way, there's all sorts of things that try to waylay him. He encounters doubt. He encounters fear, all personified as different people or events. But in in the final leg of the journey, right before he reaches the celestial city, Christian has to, and his friend Hopeful, have to cross a place called the Enchanted Land. And the Enchanted Land is a different trial that he has ever faced before. Because what the Enchanted Land is, is a place where something about the air, something about the atmosphere makes you want to sleep. Just makes you feel like that, you know, a nap would be really great right now. And it's intended to lull you to sleep so that you will no longer progress in your journey. And Christian and Hopeful have to keep encouraging other, keep talking to each other, keep reminding each other of what they've experienced together in order to not fall asleep, to keep each other awake. And and this was representative of something in the Christian life, which is this tendency towards spiritual slumber. This this sense that as we go through the world, we, we sort of just get a little drowsy about the things of God. Just like they don't seem quite as important. They don't move us quite like they used to. And some of the things that are going on seem pretty important. Some of the things that are happening in my life that I'm seeing in the world seem pretty important. It's like that old hymn that talks about the things of earth growing strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace, except the exact opposite, that the things of God start growing strangely dim in the light of the things that we're seeing in the world. I bring this up because I think that story exemplifies something that Jesus is going to be helping us fight against in Mark 13, because one of the things we're going to see in Mark 13 is Jesus calling his disciples to stay awake. There's this consistent call to wake up, to see things for the way they are, to see the world for the way it is, and to act accordingly because of that. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark 13, setting the context a little bit. So Since Mark 11, we have seen Jesus being in and around Jerusalem. We've seen him having confrontation with religious leaders. We saw him cleansing the temple of the people that were buying and selling there. 
and, and also the cursing of the fig tree, indicating that the time of the temple is coming to an end. And yes, our last week, John led us through Mark 12, where we looked at this parable that Jesus teaches of the tenants that were basically beating up and killing all of the prophets and eventually the son that the master sent. And, and John challenged us to take the uncomfortable question of how much we might look like the tenants in that parable. Um, how much are we really living into the calls to love God with all our soul, heart, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that ends with Jesus in the temple watching a, a widow as she puts all that she has, all her remaining money, into the offering plate, and Jesus sort of holding this up as an example of a person who is loving God with all that she has. Well, here at the beginning of chapter 13, we're going to see they are now leaving the temple. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. I'm going to read 1 through 13, and then uh, 24 through 37. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jumping down to 24. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning 
lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So here we have Jesus very much taking on a prophetic role. Jesus fulfills the offices of prophet, priest, and king. And here we see him serving as a prophet, telling his disciples some of the things that are about to come. And I think there's sort of two big events that are in view that Jesus is telling them about. The first is the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And this happened Uh, in AD 70. After a Jewish rebellion, Roman Emperor Titus came and sieged Jerusalem. And the siege started three days before Passover. So Passover being one of the travel feasts, the city was full of pilgrims. Josephus, who was um, a Jew that witnessed the siege of Jerusalem and later wrote a history of the Jews, claims that 1.1 million people were killed during that siege because there were so many people there who had traveled. And he actually gave a description of exactly what Jesus talks about here. So Jesus says at the beginning of this passage, when the disciples are awed by the buildings, awed by these stones, Jesus says that all of these stones are going to be cast down. Here's how Josephus describes it. Now, as soon as the army had no more people to slay or to plunder because there remained none to be the objects of their fury. Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple. This was also, and he describes a couple of towers that were spared. This was all spared in order to afford a camp for such as were to lie in garrison, as were the towers also spared in order to demonstrate to posterity what kind of city it was and how well fortified which the Roman valor had subdued. But for all the rest of the wall surrounding Jerusalem, it was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was left nothing to make those that came later believe Jerusalem had ever been inhabited. This was the end which Jerusalem came to by the madness of those that were for innovations, a city otherwise of great magnificent and of mighty fame among all mankind. So we see here Jesus 40 years approximately beforehand predicting what is going to happen to Jerusalem. It's going to be completely laid waste. So that's the first thing that's in view here. The second comes later on, I think most clearly, in verses 24 through 27 where it talks about in verse 25, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Jesus here is telling them that the king is going to come back. He is going to come back and gather his elect, and then there will be a time of judgment, and then the restoration, the new heavens, and the new earth. Now, This is a chapter where, as you can imagine, there is a lot of debate among commentators about some of the specifics of what Jesus is predicting here and what he's referring to. So some commentators believe that pretty much the entire chapter, verses 3 through 27, are all about the fall of Jerusalem. Other commentators believe the entire thing, 
is actually about the end times and the return of Jesus. Uh, many believe that it's some combination, that parts of it are referring to the fall of Jerusalem and other parts are referring to the return of Jesus, a view which I hold. I believe it's referring to both. Some think that there's a kind of double fulfillment taking place where he sort of has the fall of Jerusalem in view, but also kind of in the background of that, also pointing to the eventual return of Jesus. But where I take what I believe is that verse 2 is very clearly predicting the fall of Jerusalem, that in verses 3 through 13, Jesus is telling his disciples about what they are going to face as the gospel is being proclaimed to the nations. Then And those are things that are not just particular to the early church, but things that also are going to be for the church that we'll experience through all time. And we're going to talk more about that in a minute. I think 14 through 23 is most likely predictions leading up to the fall of Jerusalem. But I'm going to be honest, this is the section that can kind of most swing either way in terms of how you understand it. And then 24 through 27 is speaking about Jesus's return. But whichever vein you end up in terms of how you understand these, I think there are several things that stand out that Jesus is attempting to prepare his disciples for with regards to what is coming. I think the first thing is getting back to that idea of of enchantment and disenchantment. These disciples have seen these wonderful buildings and they're kind of in awe of it. Jesus, look how wonderful this place is. And Jesus tells his disciples, no, what you're seeing here, this is slated for destruction. It's temporary. It's going to pass away. He is trying to disenchant them a little bit with the spectacle of the temple and the spectacle of Jerusalem. And I think to a certain degree, the same can be said for his teaching around his return, the fact that he's coming back the knowledge that there is going to be a new heavens and a new earth, that the things of this world, the things that we are dealing with every day, not that they aren't valuable, but they are also temporary. And so because of that, that should frame the way that we see the world. That should frame the way we interact with the things that we see. We shouldn't be like the disciples being like, wow, look at this. This is so amazing. We should certainly worship God for what he's created, but also understand temporary he also uses this opportunity to tell them about what they're going to face that there are going to be false teachers false prophets there's going to be those who are pretending to be the messiah there's going to be those who are going to claim to be prophets that actually aren't and you can see that throughout church history so many people who have claimed things about god themselves that ultimately proved to be false. He talks about the fact that there's going to be tribulations similar to what has occurred since the fall. There's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. We have some experience of that recently. There's going to be natural disasters. He taught mentions earthquakes. But he says that these things are not particular signs that the end is close. And I think that can be sometimes our tendency is that when things seem to be going really bad and there's a series of bad events, our, our, our tendency to say, well, this must be the end is near. And Jesus says, no, these are just reminders. He calls them birth pains. They're reminders that there is something else to come. 
that we are still living in the time of the fall, but there is coming a new heavens and a new earth, and these things are like the birth pains of what is later to come. He says that the gospel is going to go to the nations, and we're going to see he's going to task later the disciples with this work. But he says that as the gospel is going to the the nations, that that is going to be met with persecution. He tells them that they're going to be taken before councils. He tells them that they're going to be taken on trial before kings. He tells them that even within their own families, there's going to be friction. But I don't think he tells them this because he wants them to be afraid. He tells them this, one, so they'll be realistic about the fact that as the gospel goes forward, that there's going to be opposition and that they will not be surprised by that. And church, we shouldn't either. As we are living into the same commands that he's going to give the disciples to take the gospel to the nations, there is going to be opposition both from our enemy and the world as we go about doing that. And that should not surprise us. But he also gives them some assurances here. He assures them in that moment when you are standing there, And you do not know what to say. You do not know how you're going to defend yourself. You do not know how you are going to represent Jesus in those moments. He says, my Holy Spirit is going to be with you and just say what I give you in those moments. I feel like there is so much assurance here that, yes, you're going to face opposition, but you are not going to face it alone. That as we go about doing the work of gospel proclamation, the Holy Spirit is going to be with us in that. And we will know what to say and we will not face it alone. I I think that is why he tells them this, is so that they will not fear, but know that he'll be with them in the midst of that. At the end of this, Jesus tells them a parable. He tells them a parable in verses 32 through 37. He says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. I want to pause there for just a second. I think this is important. Um, No one knows the day or the hour. That's what it says here. What that means is if someone comes to you and says they know the day or the hour, they don't know the day or the hour, and you should run away, okay? Okay. Right? When someone publishes that book, the 2022 reasons why Jesus is returning in 2022, just know there's a good chance that there's going to be a need of 2023 reasons why Jesus is returning in 2023, right? Like, no one knows. But we are supposed to have the attitude that it could happen at any time. And that because of that, there is a call to vigilance. He says this, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servant in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. He uses this image of servants who are working in the house and their master is gone and they do not know when he's going to come back. And you can think about this at your job, right? If you're asleep on the job, when the boss comes back, it's not going to go well for you. It's kind of a similar idea here, 
right? When Jesus returns, we want to be awake. We want to be ready. We want to be doing the things that he has given us to do. So what does that mean? What does it mean to stay awake? I mean, I think the first thing that that means is that we have put our faith in Jesus. Jesus has told us, hey, I am coming back. In other places in the New Testament, we see he is coming back. And at that time that there is going to be judgment, there is going to be a giving, a reckoning. And in that moment, Jesus is our hope. He is the way that we are able to enter the celestial city that we see, the new heavens and the new earth. So part of what it means to stay awake is that we have to wake up to our need for Jesus Christ. And with the recognition that 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 time, we don't know when that time is coming. But for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, I think there is this call to not be lulled into a sense of spiritual apathy. Because like Christian in the enchanted ground, there is a sense in which, as we talked about earlier, the world kind of just seems to be very large in our eyes. And it can be hard for us sometimes to remember, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be about the master's business. That we are supposed to be first and foremost, servants of Jesus Christ in the places that he has called us. And I think, too, there is a part of spiritual awakeness that is about putting our hope in the right place. Because, yes, we don't want to be caught sleeping, but there's more than that. I think there's also a call for us to be longing for Jesus' return. As it says in Revelation, where John pleads, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Right? It's not just that, oh, I wonder when Jesus is going to come back. It's Jesus is coming back. That's something we should be longing for and excited for. Something that daily we are anticipating. Because this is where ultimately our hope sits. You know, I was thinking about that story in Pilgrim's Progress. Where Christian and Hopeful... The two friends are crossing the enchanted land together. The way they stay awake is they talk to each other. And they tell each other about the things that they have seen God do on their journey. So I think there's also a part of spiritual awakeness that is not just an individual thing. It is a communal thing. It's something where we should be reminding each other, stay awake. He's coming back something that we as a community anticipate together. I think here in Mark 13, Jesus has done us a great service because he has told us that what we are experiencing is temporary. He's coming back. There's something else we have to look forward to, and that should shape the way that we pursue our life with the knowledge that the new heavens and the new earth are ultimately where we're going to be. So we should stay awake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is so much that would seek to lull us to sleep. Lord, just the cares and burdens of life in this world. Lord, some of the hard things that we see. 
Lord God, we need you to help us to stay awake. Lord, may we remind each other. May we remind each other of the hope that we have in you. Lord, may the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and your grace. All these things I pray in your precious and holy name. Amen.